Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, the remnant. Welcome back to another podcast. Can't wait to get to our guest today. I was just telling her before we got on the air, I've been trying to get her on the podcast. She doesn't realize this for probably a year and a half. But anyway, glad to have Natasha Crane with us. Um, Father, thank you for giving us another opportunity to speak about things that matter and to try to encourage believers with the hope that we have that can never be taken away but also, Lord, to challenge our thinking, to help do some equipping that maybe they're not getting at some of their churches, but also just to point them to you, Jesus, and to recognize that your word is truth and the importance of having that foundation in our lives. And we will not be shaken if we, are, if we set our mind and our hearts on you, God. Help us to do that, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and give us wisdom today. We need it every day, Lord. But with everything that's going on around us, speak through us by your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom, insight in every interaction that we have, whether it be online, in person, with family, wherever that might be. Take us, Lord. Lead us. Help us to follow and make us sensitive to your voice. We love you and we praise you. May your will be done today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we are so blessed to have Natasha Crane with us. She's a national speaker, author, blogger, podcaster. She is passionate about a lot of the things we're passionate about here, helping Christians think biblically in an increasingly secular world. She writes about apologetics, worldview, culture, and parenting. Let me share a couple of her books or book titles. Talking with Your Kids About Jesus, that's her most recent. Then also Talking with Your Kids About God. Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, and the importance of that with all the surveys that are coming out and the things that kids, children are bombarded with. Also, her articles have been featured in outlets such as Focus on the Family Magazine and the Christian Research Journal. She's got an MBA in Marketing and Statistics from UCLA, a BA in Economics from USC, and a Certificate in Christian Apologetics from Biola University. Now, before she became an author, speaker, writer, she was a marketing executive and an adjunct marketing professor, and then she transitioned to the full-time ministry of writing and speaking. Her husband and her, they've been married 21 years. They have three children, uh, two of those are twins, and 12 years old, and she, uh, of course, homeschools, thank God, and they live in Southern California. Natasha Crane, thank you so much for joining us on Stand Up For The Truth. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to talk with you today. All right. Same here. And um, I was telling you before we got on the air a couple of years ago, we interviewed another mama bear and uh, Hillary Morgan Ferrer. And we uh, talked about the importance of uh, moms raising their children. Let me, let's start right there before we get into your background. Interesting question that just came to my mind. So that's kind of scary. It wasn't in my notes. But fathers <laughs> have generally been the workers and the providers and out there busy working you know, to try to take care of their families. And moms have been taking care of the kids at home. Of course, that's tr the traditional way we used to do it before moms got full-time jobs. And then we handed kids over to the government-run schools or someone else to raise our kids. 
But how important is it for now the moms that are home and dads have to be involved, but I understand if they're working full time, how important is it for the mom to really understand they need to really instill that biblical worldview in their children at home before they get out into the world? Yeah, well, it's incredibly important. And, you know, this is obviously what I'm so passionate about. So, of course, I'm going to say it's very, very important. But I want moms in general to understand that we can't hand this responsibility over to the church. The mm. church is an incredibly important part of the life of a believer in our community and where we go to in part to worship God. But we do not see that churches by and large are taking on the responsibility of training up kids mm -hmm. in this serious way of preparing them for the world in terms of the specifics of what they're going to encounter and apologetics in general, how we make a case for and defend the Christian faith. And so this is an integral part of our discipleship in the home. It's not just that we set a good example for our kids, which I think every Christian mom knows this is going to be something important that we do, but it goes beyond the example because most Multiple people can live lives that look kind of similar, and our kids can go out in the world and see lots of people who look similar to them, but our beliefs matter too. There's a lot that needs to underlie that so that we're loving God first, and then we live lives that are poured out for others as a reflection of that belief. And so we have a lot of groundwork today mm -hmm. that we have to do in order to prepare our kids to understand all of these things so that they don't come away thinking it's just about being nice and kind of what I do, they're going to be way more challenged than that. And they're going to have to understand why it's worth being a Christian today in an increasingly hostile world. Just looking at your book titles, a couple of them, it's all about raising your kids in the faith, talking with your kids about Jesus, about God, keeping your kids on God's side. Um, how do parents yeah, I know you write about this in, in probably each of those books about managing their time and, and trying to pour into their kids. It's so important. I know you just explained that. But for parents that are thinking, well, I've gone so many years now. My kids are in public schools, let's just say, for example, and we have not raised them up in the ways of the Lord. Is it too late? And have have they already been indoctrinated? How do you respond to that? Well, it's never too late because it's never too late for God and for God's Amen. work. And so we we have to always know that, you know, we're called to make an investment. This isn't about a purchase. And, and I always like to make that comparison for parents because sometimes we get into this mentality that, okay, if I start early enough and I put in X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to be guaranteed some kind of outcome in terms of my kid's spiritual life. And, and that's not how it works. We are called to make the investment and the relationship between our kids and the Lord is going to be between them. So it's never too late to make that investment. And in fact, I hear from parents often who have grown kids. They're adults now. They even have their own families, their grandparents even. And they're saying, you know, I can see that either my kids, my adult kids have walked away or maybe they're in the process of walking away. I want to make a difference. What do I do? So it's never too late to equip yourself to have these conversations that are so important. Now, the, how that conversation looks is going to depend on the age of your child. Obviously, the way that we're going to talk to a 12-year-old is going to be different than the way that we would talk to a 35-year-old adult child, but it's never too late to make those connections and to have those conversations. Amen. Never too late. Well, let's talk about when you started, because your career was in marketing. And first of all, how did you survive for all we've heard about the university system, and most of it's probably true, and the hostility toward the Christian worldview, and how did you survive UCLA and USC, 
And were you a born again believer at that time when you were going to college? Yeah, you know, I was I would say I was more of a nominal Christian at the time. I grew up in a wonderful, loving Christian home, but it was very much for for me it was, well, I'm going to be as nice of a person as I can and mm -hmm. bide my time until eventually I'm going to go to heaven because I'm saved. That's kind of what I took from hundreds of hours of church. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of kids today do take from hundreds of hours of church yes. if they're not getting more of that discipleship in the home. So it's really easy when you graduate from high school and you have this nice little tight faith like this to go on to college and it's kind of disconnected from you. I, I've made the analogy before. It was like a suitcase of beliefs I carried along with me. It wasn't my identity in Jesus. And those are very different things in terms of how you end up connecting. And so, uh, you know, I often look back. It's interesting that you asked that question. I've never been asked that before. But when I look back on my experience in college and I think about what it was like being a nominal Christian, I couldn't tell you what anyone around me believed. I mean, I was in a sorority and I couldn't tell you what anyone's worldview was in that house other than obviously we were all living in a very secular kind of way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when I look back at that, it just it makes me just realize if if you're not a very committed Christian, you're just not thinking about the importance of the worldview for everything that you should be looking at it with. And now today, it's very apparent to me in every interaction because I'm constantly thinking about this, where people are coming from and, mm. and how they're viewing the world. But that's only because now my faith is much stronger and this is something that I, I think about all the time. So it's an interesting question because I think it, it says a lot about when, when kids do go off to college, even if they aren't experiencing direct hostility. And I think far more kids are today than when I was in college. Yeah. But even if they're not experiencing that directly, if they're not just having a deep faith because of, of the discipleship that they've had and that they have come to believe in Jesus in that deep way, then they're not going to grow in college further in, unless you are really pushing them along that path. Well, that's interesting. I'm glad I'm the first one to ask you that. And two of the reasons I did was, of course, I used to live in Southern California for uh, 16 years. And also people we've had on the podcast that are much more up to date and knowledgeable about the education system, not only K through 12, but the university system today. I mean, we've had Dr. Duke Pesta, Sam Sorbo, Israel, Wayne, Alex Newman, and I can go on down the list of the people we've had on talking about education, what's really happening, the curriculum, and then, of course, how kids are being raised today, um, really to uh, reject the biblical worldview. And um, so the next question would be, so you're in college, you're a nominal Christian. You went from marketing to apologetics. The average person doesn't make that leap from a <laughs> secular job. I'm to a believer, maybe. And then you start, you know, learning about discipleship and learning about God and the biblical worldview and 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 feeding your faith, so to speak. The typical person doesn't jump into apologetics. Uh, take us on that road. How did you get there to where you are now, writing about it, speaking, and doing books? Yeah, it, it's it's a bit of a whirlwind, and I'll, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. <laughs> no problem. But uh, after but after college, uh, so my husband was kind of at the same place that that I was, and we got married a, a year after college. And in terms of our spiritual lives, we were kind of in the same nominal place. And so, but we decided, you know, we should go to church, and that was you know the, the one thing that we knew to do. And so we decided to start going to a local church. It was close, and it was a <laughs> Presbyterian church, and we're like, well, that sounds Christian. 
<laughs> and so we started attending and, you know, I, I didn't have the, the knowledge of vocabulary at the time to understand it, but we were in a very progressive Christian church, um, theologically speaking, for about three years. And it was on an Easter Sunday when uh, the, the pastor was preaching that one day I realized, you know what, this doesn't sound like what I grew up believing, hmm. uh, or at least thinking that I was believing, because the pastor said that it doesn't really matter if Jesus actually rose from the dead. What matters is that he lives on in our hearts and we can now make the world a better place. Oh my goodness. And I remember <laughs> I remember sitting there thinking, that, do that just doesn't doesn't sound quite right. They were going to plant flowers around the church for Easter to represent this new life that we have because of a metaphorical resurrection. And I thought, you know, I don't think that I need to even go to church if it's about planting flowers. So <laughs> at that point, we kind of realized, you know, this, this isn't quite, uh, it doesn't sound quite right, even though we didn't know what exactly was wrong. So fast forward a bit, we actually ended up moving cities and we ended up attending a church that not because we knew where to go, but uh, it just happened to be a strong Bible teaching church. Praise the Lord for that. And that kind of shifted our trajectory to take our faith more seriously, to understand what these problems were, uh, to learn more about theology and so on. And eventually we had kids. And uh, when my kids were very little, I had three kids, three and under at the time, I decided to start a blog. This was back in 2011. And I started the blog thinking, you know what, I'm just going to do this Christian parenting blog so that I can have a place where I can connect with other parents. And it's a little isolating when you have kids kids that young and you can't always get out of the house to go connect with people. So I start this Christian parenting blog just to write about little things like, you know, the devotions that we were doing and songs we were singing, very lighthearted kind of stuff. Uh, but somehow along the way, my blog started attracting more and more people who were reading it and they would share my posts online. And as they did, it started bringing a lot of non-believers to my site. Wow. And I wasn't looking to engage in any kind of <laughs> debate <laughs> about religion, to be sure, because I was not qualified or prepared whatsoever after those hundreds of hours of church I talked about. Mm. So uh, I started getting really challenged through the blog. People were leaving comments like, you know, you know, there's no evidence for for God's existence, right? The Bible's filled with errors and contradictions and evolution has disproved God. And don't you know you're just indoctrinating your kids? Just let them figure it out for themselves when they grow up. So I started hearing all these things and I realized, you know, I am raising kids in this totally different world than the one in which I grew up. Hmm. And I, I'm not prepared for this. I mean, I can read them a devotion, but how am I supposed to explain to them how I know that God exists? I've just always assumed that he did. And so I started digging into answers. I started looking for the answers, started reading. I became a voracious reader. I, I literally just set off into this intense reading journey. I read hundreds of books about apologetics and theology. And as I was doing this, I then turned around and would write articles on my blog to help equip other Christian parents. So I would say, hey, I'm getting a lot of comments from atheists and non-believers who are saying this. Well, here's what you need to know. And eventually, uh, my blog just really grew from that because so many people just uh, said, hey, I need this information too. You know, mm. I, I'm not getting this at church. I'm not hearing about mm. this and I don't know what to do. And so that's what led to a publisher reaching out and saying, hey, do you want to write a book with maybe answers to 40 of these big questions you've been talking about? And so that became my first book, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. And after that one, people wanted more and they said, well, can you now do the next step? Like, what do we do after this book? And so talking with 
with your kids about God was then 30 questions at the God level. Like, how do we know God exists? What's the nature of God? Questions about science of God, those kinds of things. And then my most recent one is talking with your kids about Jesus, which tackles 30 questions about Jesus personally, his identity, the resurrection, you know, spoiler alert, it's not just a metaphor like that pastor had said. It's a <laughs> literal bodily resurrection with much historical evidence. And so uh, that that's what that book's about. So that's, I said, I try to keep it brief and I totally failed at that, but that's no. the long story of how I got there. And yes, along the way I did, um, I stopped my marketing job so I could focus on both being a mom and and working on my ministry. Well, praise God. And you did keep it brief, believe me. Um, and, and it was great because you encouraged a lot of people, particularly women, Christian women, because you said 2011, that's just 10 years ago. So right. some people say, oh, I've wasted decades and I, there's no way I can do it. And I think going back to one of the earlier responses, you said it's never too late for your kids. It should never be too late for us to dig into God's word and to mm -hmm. strengthen our worldview or maybe even change or challenge some of the beliefs that we had that are really not scriptural. Maybe we heard from a pastor or teacher. And that brings me to um, another question. You mentioned hundreds of hours of church and a lot of of people, a lot of Christians write into this podcast. They write into me and they say, you know, they're asking for a good sound doctrine uh, teaching church and a biblical church that's not afraid to talk about everything from Bible prophecy to the Old Testament to cultural issues. And they're not getting that. So you say hundreds of hours of church. And Natasha Crane, I know a lot of our listeners can relate to that because before they maybe got to the church they're at now or before they started studying the Bible on their own and getting into uh, prophecy and apologetics and things like that, they were not equipped and they were not discipled. So what advice can you give to someone who's listening right now who is saying, I feel like I have spent those hundreds of hours going to a church on a Sunday morning and it's hard to leave because my friends are there, but I know I'm not growing or I'm not getting out there and defending the faith. What advice would you give them? Yeah, that it, that is a very difficult question, actually, in terms of finding a church, because I think that there can be a tendency to do church hopping, mm, yes. <laughs> if you will, mm -hmm. where people are looking for the absolute perfect church where there's not a single thing the pastor ever says that, you know, that they don't disagree with and, and that is just everything they've ever dreamed of. And so I would say start out with the right expectations. But first and foremost, the church has to be biblically sound and teaching what is accurate. If you're in a church, just for community and what's being taught is not biblically accurate. That is an immediate flag to say, I. what's most important here is that I am loving God first and foremost with all of my heart, soul, and mind. And I cannot do that if I am being fed with something that's not accurate about him. And so we have to have our priorities in place. Love others, yes, but we must love God first. Yeah. And so it's really important not to see church as just a community. And that's how people end up in all kinds of progressive churches that are teaching things that are uh, opposite of what the Bible would say. So that's the first thing. But know that even if you find, and if and when you find a biblically sound church, not everything's going to be perfect that's there. Right. And, and, it, and it can be really difficult to know when something kind of crosses the line as to, okay, we do need to find another church now. But when you're looking 
looking for one of several possibilities. I would say start on the website and look to see if they have a statement of faith, something what we believe. Yes. If a church does not have that on their site, I say run. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I always tell people, because if that's not the most important thing that people should know about you as they're considering your church, then that says a lot about where the heart of the church is. And And I've done a lot of research around progressive churches and this is something you often see they will not have their statement of faith because they don't have something that will unify everyone that's huge and we're going to talk about that when we come back you write a lot about progressive christianity it's a problem in today's church and it's a growing issue that we have to deal with we have to know how to respond to these people we are with natasha crane and we've got a whole lot more to come on stand up for the truth keep it right here Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Our guest is Natasha Crane. you got to check out her podcast. One of the most recent uh, podcasts she did, Critical Thinking in a Secular World. I'll just tease that. We can probably talk about that at some point. But I want to quote something that you referenced earlier, and this is going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Natasha, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And listen to verse 7, parents. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak them, speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. That doesn't leave a lot out, Natasha, does it? And the responsibility, even though there are some churches that maybe do teach sound doctrine, one hour on a Sunday is not going to cut it. It really comes back to the parents raising up the kids, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and I love that passage because it really does speak to how this isn't about any particular time of the week. It's just constant. Mm -hmm. And one of the analogies that I give in the introduction, actually, to my most recent book, Talking with the Kids About Jesus, I talk about how a a good analogy for this is that we want to always be in this state of low grade tidying where you're constantly, you know, picking up in little ways with your kids' faith. And, you know, it's just like, you don't want to have to do this giant clean out of your house because it takes hours upon hours and it's super overwhelming. But when you just constantly pick up a little as you go, that's not as overwhelming. And it's the same thing with faith conversations in the home, that if we're equipped as the parents with an understanding of the conversations that need to happen and how to have those conversations, then we're in a position that we can identify as things come up in the day and we can throw little things in and we can have those conversations on an ongoing basis. And then it's far less overwhelming. We're not trying to do a giant you know, dump of laundry all at once. We're just doing one little thing at a time. That's right. Hey, I just want to mention, I'm on your website looking at the book page, talking with your kids about Jesus. And I just want to mention to our audience who will know a lot of these men and women of God who endorsed your book, John Fuller, Vice President of Focus on the Family, Jeff Myers, Summit Ministries. We just talked to him a week and a half ago. Um, Who else is on there? Bobby Conway, love his one-minute apologist. Um, Just look at some of the Jay Warner Wallace and his wife, um, just Jack Hibbs. We have him on this uh, uh, radio station that hosts Stand Up For The Truth. He's uh, he's teaching half hour. Frank Turek. 
uh, crossexamine.org. Alisa Childers, by the way, we're trying to get her on the podcast. But a lot of these people that um, endorsed you, and of course, Hillary Morgan Ferrer, which we, we mentioned earlier, just some great people. How did you connect with some of these, Natasha? You, I mean, you haven't been doing this for decades. You started blogging 10 years ago. I mean, I, I know the uh, apologetic community is uh, a little, uh, not on the, I was going to say a little a tight-knit community, but how did you connect with some of these people who ended up giving you just a very nice endorsements for the book? Yeah, I'm, I'm so blessed that there have been so many people who have been kind enough to offer those endorsements. And, you know, it's just a little bit by little bit over time really is because of, I think, my blog. And so, uh, you know, as I write articles over time and they get shared and people pick them up, then, uh, you know, people just kind of reached out to me and they said, hey, this is great. I'd love to support you however I can. And and so eventually we just make connections in that way. There's no uh, silver bullet mm. <laughs> for, for making those connections, but it just kind of slowly happens over time. What a blessing. Um, so yes. we're not going to dive deeply into your books. I mean, it's there's so much. There's so many sections and so many bullet points. I think you've got there's five parts at least and up to 30, you said, 30 questions. Um, but right. I want to talk about one. That, that just piqued my interest, because this is a book for kids. This is talking with your kids about Jesus, and a lot of adults have a hard time defending the faith, and I want to direct people. I just want to go over to 1 Peter 3 real quick, a very common verse that we cite when it comes to apologetics, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account or a reason for the hope that is in you, but do this with gentleness and respect. So talking with your kids about Jesus. Number 19, Natasha Crane, why does it matter if Jesus was resurrected? Explain what you shared about in that point. Yeah, this is really an important chapter. It's interesting that you you pulled this one out because this was kind of near and dear to my heart when I wrote it because mm. I think it's something that a lot of apologetics books skip right over. Mm. They go straight to, here's all the evidence, yes. but people aren't saying, you know, well, why does it matter so much? A lot of, especially a lot of kids would say, okay, cool. You know, I've always heard Jesus was raised from the dead. I know that's like a thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> but to actually be able to have your kids articulate why it matters so much is really critical. And so what I talk about in that chapter is, you know, Paul's words saying, uh, you know, if Christ has not been raised, that your faith is in vain. This is ultimately the truth test for Christianity. So when we say, how do I know that Christianity is true? Of course, there are many, many things we can talk about. But when I teach my own kids, I point them right back to the resurrection. I say, according to the Bible itself, this is how we know that it's true. Because if there's no good evidence to believe that Jesus was actually raised from the dead, then we should pack our bags and go home. Mm. There is no reason to just follow him as this interesting moral example. There are lots of good moral examples, however you want to define that in history. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, then it validates his claims to deity and it confirms who he said he was and therefore he has full authority for our lives. And that makes all the difference in Amen. the world. Amen. And so that that's really what I wanted to impress upon parents in that chapter is that this is why it's so important because the truth of Christianity comes down to this. And, and again, it's not a metaphorical thing. I talk about that in the chapter two. It's not some kind of fuzzy symbolism for new life where we're going to go plant flowers. It is a claimed bodily resurrection. Amen. So the next chapters after that then go into, okay, well, what what is the historical evidence for the resurrection? What are some possible 
naturalistic explanations, in other words, explanations that don't point to any kind of supernatural event, and then looking at why a supernatural resurrection where Jesus actually was supernaturally raised from the dead is the best explanation right. as long as you haven't discounted it from the outset because of your presuppositions that God doesn't exist. Excellent answer. Thank you, Natasha. Two words, Holy Spirit. Um, what you said about Jesus' full authority. He himself said at the end of Matthew 28, I believe, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and then the Great Commission. Therefore, go. But we have this culture and this society where Moral relativism is rampant. There's definitely a war on truth, an attack on truth, and that goes back to the very existence of God. It goes back to creation. Otherwise, we wouldn't be as confused about gender and what sex you can be, whatever you want to be. You know, my, And kids are learning this. So it really does come back to the authority of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Before we get into the challenging and disappointing to me— um, subject of progressive Christianity, uh, postmodernism, liberal Christians in the church, and this is a threat. It already has seduced the church with worldly philosophies. I wanted to ask you what you're working on now, because you've got a new book that you're going to be coming out with in February of 2022. It's called Faithfully Different, and I love this, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Tell us a little bit about that. Give us a tease. I know God willing we'll have you on uh, when the book comes out again. But tell us a little bit about what led you down this path to work on this book. Yeah, this is my first non-parenting book. So we've been talking about my apologetics books for parents. But in the last year, as everything really kicked up with all the, the social unrest and everything that was going on and critical theory started becoming this thing that yes. everyone was talking about, I started writing a lot about non-parenting, just general worldview analysis and trying to help Christians think more consistently within a biblical worldview. And those blog posts really just exploded. Mm -hmm. I wrote one uh, in some of 2020 about five ways that Christians are getting swept into a secular worldview in this cultural moment. It was shared a quarter of a million times. <laughs> and so as I as I started writing and then the, the further posts that I was writing about all of this in terms of social justice and just thinking clearly about it, I just got so much traction of people saying, thank you for writing about this and just trying to sort of calmly explain this is what's going on and here's how to think about it rather than just let's all be outraged. And so uh, that led to me really realizing that there was this need to just help Christians think from this worldview perspective about all that's going on in a secular worldview, mm. which I define as any kind of uh, belief system where the authority is the self Mm. as opposed to looking to God, higher authority, versus the Christian worldview where your authority, of course, is God. And so from that is coming my new book, Faithfully Different. I am actually two weeks away from finishing it, so oh, I'm on deadline right God. now finishing that up. Wow. And, uh, and it does come out in February, but it goes through uh, chapters on faithfully different believing, just looking at the the secular pressures on how we believe as Christians today and all this deconstruction stuff that we're seeing uh, and, and how to deal with doubts. And it goes through faithfully different thinking, how our beliefs should inform our thoughts. And then finally, faithfully different living, looking at the questions around social justice and sharing truth and a cancel culture and things like that. So I'm very excited about the book. I just will be very excited when I'm done writing it in two weeks. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I, it's, it's 
almost like I, I've never I've never had a baby, uh, but the birthing process, <laughs> the the creative process when you write a book, you're done with that, and it's 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 a very yes. personal and, and creative and, and overwhelming at times. Uh, endeavor, but when it's done, it's like, oh, here it is. Uh, my work and my right. my heart and my my mind and my effort, my time and time away from your kids to write and just different things. Um, let's go down this road. You mentioned deconstruction. You may- mentioned critical race theory. You mentioned uh, the the what's seeping into the church. Of course, um, oh, there's so many things we could talk about, but I do want to kind of stay right around progressive Christianity. What's wrong with that word? putting uh, the Christian left or progressive or liberal Christian, what's wrong with putting these ideas together? Well, it's sort of an oxymoron because if you, you know, if God is who he says he is and the Bible is God's word, then his truth is not going to change. And so to say that this is a progressive Christianity, we're progressing beyond the God's truth in the Bible Mm. is an oxymoron of sorts. That said, the the fundamental difference that, that I kind of try to draw out repeatedly in this book is that it really does all come down to a person's view of the Bible. What is the Bible? So for a progressive Christian, the Bible is really people talking about their experiences with God. It's a man's view of God. It's a helpful tool in that way because we can be inspired by it. We can see how people have thought about God in the past, but it's not God's word for man for all time. So this is the fundamental distinction. And because of that, we literally have two different worldviews. Just because progressive Christianity has Christianity in the title does not mean we share a worldview because they are so fundamentally different. Mm. Ultimately, a a Christian biblical worldview that's centered on the Bible as God's word based on God's authority, and that's who I'm going to look to for the final word on everything, that is completely different than someone saying, this is a helpful book, and so are all these other books, and this is inspired in some kind of general sense, but not in the way of assuming that God inspired it, that's going to take you down a very different path because ultimately that's about self-authority. Ultimately, that is about the person saying, I'm in the position to pick and choose what I believe and what I don't believe. So it's really no different than a purely secular worldview in which the authority is a self. Progressive Christians might have an added appreciation for Jesus, an added affinity for Jesus than somebody who's purely secular, irreligious, but ultimately the authority is the same. It's all about the authority of the self. And that's why progressive Christianity looks so much like the world, because Mm. their authority is the same. There's that word again, authority. We are speaking with Natasha Crane, her website, natashacrane.com. Check out her books, also her blog. And I'm going to ask her a couple of questions coming up about a couple of her blog posts, which are phenomenal, I believe. Um, but let's talk about this idea that the, this uh, secular culture and secular influences have creeped into the church, have crept into the church. Um, do people on the left, let's just say progressives or people that really don't hold to the biblical worldview, the true traditional biblical worldview, do you think they are more into works and, and feelings over facts and, and maybe even over truth? How does something make them feel? Uh, they Maybe many of them mean well, but they have maybe been deceived into some of these worldly philosophies. 
Yeah. You know, I, I hate to make sweeping generalizations about, you know, if it's facts versus feelings. I think that a lot of us who are more conservative in our beliefs would say, yes, there's a lot of that going on. But hmm. uh, I, I would point back to one specific reason for why their faith looks the way it is. And it, it comes back to Jesus in the two greatest commandments to number one, love God, and number two, love others. You can't love others in a biblical worldview unless you first know what it means to love God. You have to know what it means to love God. In order to know what it means to love God, you've got to have some kind of authoritative source that tells you accurately who God is and what he has done and what he wants from us. And that's what the Bible is. But if you throw out the authority of God and you throw out the Bible as God's word to us for all time, as progressive Christians do, then what you're left with is for you to determine what it means to love God and to love others. And when you are left to, again, the authority of the self for what it means to love people, love can mean anything in the world. And they fall right in line with the secular view that love means affirming whatever journey a person is on. So if love is that kind of affirmation, then you're going to be left in this grand relativism. And I think that is where the difference comes, because I think that many progressive Christians care deeply about the world around them. I think that there are people who do see there are a lot of injustices and they and mm -hmm. they don't want people to hurt, of course. but they are misguided in how they go about loving them because they have the wrong definition of love, having thrown out the Bible as God's word so that they don't know what it means to first love God. Oh my goodness. We're going to get into that in, in the next segment. There, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about your blog, Critical Thinking in a Secular World, was this idea of if we really love our neighbor, don't we want to just allow them to, quote, live and let live? You know, why do we want to intervene or interfere with their lives, their, quote, happiness? And, of course, the, the easy answer is, well, if you're not going to tell them the gospel, then you must not love them if you don't want them to be saved and know the truth. So we'll talk about that a little bit when we come back, Natasha. Um, we're on this topic of progressive Christianity, and this has been, boy, it's, it's been so gradual, this almost acceptance of these ideas in many churches, not all, of course, but many churches around the country. And like I said, I think there's a works-based mentality. They meet, People mean well. And I don't even know if I can ask a question now because we only have 30 seconds. So I think I'll just, I just want to go and share one of the scriptures I had pulled up before we take a break, Natasha. And that would be Colossians 2, verse 8, where it says, See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. And then it mentions the deity of Jesus, and there we're getting back to that idea of authority. We've got a lot more to come with Natasha Crane on Stand Up For The Truth. Keep it right here, friends. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Our guest, Natasha Crane, has a great book for Christian parents. It's called Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. And this is not something that, that's, you know, fluffy and avoids the, the heavy issues. It really gets into apologetics, and it really gets into the authority of Jesus and 30 different points in this book. It's phenomenal. So we've got that at standupforthetruth.com in today's blog post with Natasha. 
Um, and also, of course, her podcast. And it's you can get that on her website as well, natashacrane.com. So we were talking about progressive Christianity. And before we get to this idea of live and let live, which is a big argument that wins, they, they win a lot of arguments that way by getting people to back down, uh, Natasha, I do want to just have you touch on this really important article. Um, when your response to this New York Times article about progressive Christians arise, hallelujah, it was by Nicholas Kristof. And this is on your blog, and you also did a podcast uh, about this. And uh, he made the case that a church-going Democrat is in the White House. Yay, right? Um, so this is complicated things because uh, a lot of us look at Joe Biden and go, um, okay, he doesn't really seem to be a practicing uh, Christian or Catholic, I should say. He says he's a Catholic, but I know half the Catholic Church has a problem with him. But I just want to get your thoughts on why did you decide to write almost like a defense or address these issues that he brings up in this article? I mean, this is the New York Times, of course. Yeah, you know, it, it, the the article was is rather frustrating to read. And so <laughs> as I'm reading that, I am thinking I can imagine a lot of people who are swayed by this kind of thinking yes. and what he is presenting, who maybe haven't been as solidly grounded in their faith, who think, oh, yeah, well, that's true. You know, I'm seeing that a lot of these pro- progressive issues are being supported and promoted by Christians, you know, who who are in the White House and who are in Congress. And so the article really kind of makes the case, like you said, he's saying, hallelujah, now we have these Christians who are in office. And if you really read the article, it's not that he's celebrating that we're bringing in a biblical Christianity into government places. Mm -hmm. He is celebrating that there are now people who claim the name of Christ, who support the politics that he wants to support. Yep. And so it's very much about uh, pol- about the faith supporting the politics in this article. And so that's what I was trying to show that uh, you know all the people he's pointing to and saying, look at all of these Christians who care about the same kinds of social issues in the same kinds of ways that I do as a Democrat. And he's looking at that and saying, so therefore, this is a really good thing, because now we can all set aside this whole issue of, oh, it's about Christians, you know, on one side and everyone else on the other side. Now we've got Christians all over the place. So this doesn't yeah. have to be about faith anymore. And that's a really concerning view because when you give, when you look at all of his examples of the people that he's holding up as the Christians in office, these are all very clearly progressive Christians. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about in the last segment, progressive Christians have a completely different worldview ultimately than Christians who hold to the historic Christian faith and, and a biblical worldview based on the authority of God. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, they're going to have policies that look more like what the secular world supports and promotes because ultimately, again, the authority is a self. It just keeps coming back to that idea. So that's why I wanted to respond to the article because I think this confusion over, oh, look, good, we have Christians, quote unquote, Christians everywhere. Well, yes, everyone is identifying as a Christian, but let's start by defining what we're talking about by a Christian in any different context. That's brilliant. I was just going to say that you now today have to put the word uh, Christian in quotes because it has so many different and erroneous meanings in American culture and even with the church. I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean? 
Um, but right. yeah, I, I realize it, you spelled it out at the very beginning of that article. You say that piece in the New York Times was filled with so many logical problems, and they did, or he, painted theologically conservative Christians in a negative light. Let's stop right there for a minute, but is they are so good at that. They are so good at, at um, pointing or accusing you of something that they are doing. Um, what I've noticed about, for example, social justice Christians, which is really apostasy, it is a departure from the faith. They generally are, focus on good works, which a lot of worldly religions do, and they focus on government a lot, getting involved in the church, you know, whether that be helping the poor or doing all kinds of things around the world. Um, Jesus never uh, lobbied the Roman government, from my understanding of Scripture. So what, any other points in that article that really stand out to you, something that you can share right now to really kind of enlighten some of our listeners? I, I, th I think that, you know, you covered a lot there in, in the last answer, but <laughs> I, I think just in general, I know, I, I think that in general, it's just important for people to understand today that when people do say Christian, you really have to understand what they mean by Christian. And within even within biblical Christianity, people can have different views on the role of government and how much we should advocate and those kinds of things. And we have to be reasonable in those discussions. But mm -hmm. it's a whole other thing when you're talking with someone who doesn't share the same source of authority. And so those are those are the two issues that that I would highlight. Yeah, and I do have to say, you know, I'm I'm a recovering Pharisee myself. So I have to go back to that love your neighbor. And what does that look like for me or any of us when we see doctrines in the church that just don't really line up with that authority and Jesus being the only way. And it is an exclusive, we, we are part of an exclusive faith where Jesus is it. And sometimes people of other religions can look at that and go, wow, you guys are so prideful. You think Jesus is the only way. Well, we believe that because it's true. And of course, you know, people, I think of people like James Warner Wallace and Frank Turek and others who really defend that very, very well. And you yourself and other apologists. But I think the average person might not know how to respond to this. I guess I would call it an accusation. Uh, they think it's, it's an observation that Christians generally are intolerant about our own faith because it is exclusive. But Natasha, aren't most religions very exclusive in what they believe? Yeah, absolutely. Every Christian is making some kind of, I mean, every worldview makes some kind of exclusive truth claims. And mm -hmm. I think usually people just think about the commonalities of morality, for example, and they think, oh, yeah, all religions are basically the same because they all teach you to be nice. <laughs> and that's the <laughs> idea that people have in their head, don't kill each other, be nice, these kinds of things. But when you actually get into it, they teach exclusive things, things that cannot all be true at the same mm. time. And so, uh, you know, from that perspective, that is never a good case for saying that any one religion is, you know, unnecessarily exclusive. But I think for me, the bigger issue is just that if God exists and if God has chosen to reveal himself through the Bible and the Bible is God's word and he as the creator of the universe and the creator of mankind and of everything there is has said there is one way to him. Well, I don't care what you call it. I don't care if you call it exclusive or intolerant or whatever. You're arguing with the God of the universe. It's truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, that's the biggest part of it. I don't even get into the weeds so much on whether or not it's an exclusive claim. I just like to remind people, hey, it's either true or it's not true. Let's talk about why there's good reason to believe it's true, because it's what the God of the universe has said. Wow. 
Great answer. Thank you. That's pretty, that, that clarifies it right there. Let's get to the bottom line of truth. Now, uh, let's talk about one other world religion. That would be the, the world of sex or the world of uh, sexual expression, uh, promiscuity, do whatever you want. If it feels good, do it. One of the uh, big arguments today that actually I think they win a lot of arguments, one of the big things that you hear is to live and let live. And Natasha, a lot of Christians, they mean well, and we don't want uh, we don't want to judge people, quote unquote, and we but if if these are people that whatever sin it might be, if just let, let them live and let live and not share with them the truth of the gospel of repentance and of salvation, of confessing your sin, believing in Christ for eternal life. If we don't share the truth of that, then are we really loving our neighbor and just letting them letting them, quote, live and let live? Right. It, it, this goes back to the question that we were talking about earlier about how you define love. So love in a secular worldview is affirming whatever a person wants for themselves. Mm. But in a biblical worldview, love is wanting for someone what God wants for them, whether or not they want it for themselves. Ooh, that's good. And that goes back to what we talked about, about how we as Christians have to define loving others in the context of loving God first. So it comes right back to that question. Hmm. So it is the loving thing to do to be able to speak to truth and to be able to talk about these issues of morality with people. That is the loving thing to do, but people will define love differently, and that's where the disconnect is. But what troubles me that's the great. most is just when society is moving past even that of saying, hey, don't talk to me about what I'm doing. Just let me be. We're moving past that to now you're offending me, even if you don't say anything because of what you believe. Yep. I've personally experienced this um, in some very recent times and some very hurtful ways that people mm. will cut you off just because of what you believe, exactly. even if you have never even said anything about those beliefs. We're not even talking about how and when to share. We're now talking about being hated for what you think mm. and for what you believe. And so we're moving into a very different place in society. And as yes. Christians, we have to be ready to be hated for that. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily because of anything you did. Right. It is because of what you believe. You made an excellent point. I mean, Jesus warned about it. They hated him. Uh, Paul warns about it. Um, we are warned through. I mean, they killed the prophets in the Old Testament. You know, people that were called by God, send, speaking to the people, messengers of God. And here we are. We've gone from a place where maybe 50 years ago we could disagree agreeably in the public square, so to speak. Now the public square, a lot of it on social media. But now there is this, not only they, they do not like the fact that you are saying what you say, they, I mean, when I say they, I mean those who were, would be on the left, the uh, intolerance toward the biblical worldview, they don't even want us to believe the Bible, Natasha. So we have come to a very different place in this country where, and the preachers of tolerance, where a lot of people are still duped by that. They they think that they are the tolerant ones, but they are so intolerant of our worldview. I know I've appreciated your voice on social media, on your, on your Facebook and Twitter, and I know you get into a lot of discussions, maybe maybe not anymore. Like I try to avoid them, um, but you, you put a lot of truth out there, and a lot you give a lot of people things to think about, which is so important. Uh, talk a little bit about where we're at. We only have uh, two minutes left, but if, just your thoughts on some of these interactions, I know they've been disappointing to you on how people react 
to you. Just you. I know you love them. I know you want to share the truth. You want to share the gospel. Get Christians to think critically and think and reason from the scriptures and be able to defend the faith. Um, share where we're at today and what you've experienced and um, whatever your closing thoughts might be. Yeah, I think that we're in a really difficult place because it's much easier to just sit back and say, well, I'm just going to have my private faith because mm. I don't want to incur the wrath of people. I don't want people to mm. to think poorly of me or um, I, I don't want to get in trouble with my friends and family and things like that. Uh, but we are not called to just have a private faith. Amen. We are called to be salt and light in the world. And I think it's important for people to understand that just because Jesus says to be salt and light, it doesn't mean that's going to be easy or that people are going to be thankful to you for being <laughs> salt right. and light. No one today is going to be like, wow, thanks for thanks for shining that little truth nugget today. Like that's <laughs> that's not going to happen. So you cannot gauge how you're doing necessarily by how the world responds to it. Now, that doesn't mean we have a free pass to act however we want. We can't That's be right. a bunch of jerks about it. But just because people don't like it, just because people hate you, just because people are mad at you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have done anything wrong. In mm. fact, it might be because you're doing everything right and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. We have to constantly check ourselves in that. We have to constantly ask, is my motivation mm. for saying something right now in the right place? Is my heart in the right place? Is this out of love for others? Or is it because I need to make a point and I want to win something? All of that is important. But at the end of the day, we have to really just understand Christianity is not a private faith. We are called to be out and engaging with the world as salt and light. Natasha Crane, I wish I could just take that last uh, response and just put it up. Maybe we will. That segment, what you just shared, we can't gauge. Uh, people's responses is out of our control, but the book is called Talking With Your Kids About Jesus, 30 Conversations Every Christian Parent Must Have. It went by fast. Thank you so much for being with us today, Natasha. God bless you, your family, and your ministry. Thank you so much. It's been great. All right. Thank you. Well, we come back. We're going to let you know who you're going to hear from the rest of this week on Stand Up For The Truth. Stand Up For The Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now we wrap up today's Stand Up For The Truth. You will hear from Jay Siegert tomorrow in a rebroadcast. Starting Point Project is his website. Wisconsin Family Council, Julaine Appling on Thursday and Stephen Garofalo on Friday. He is the founder of Reason for Truth Ministry. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter. <laughs>